looking at David's and his men are not going to be allowed to uh, be with the Philistines in this uh, offensive against Israel. So what are David and his men going to do? That's what we see here. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they overcame Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taking captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they were killed. They were killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. When David and the people who were, were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep, David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and surely shall surely rescue. So, so David said, Good. No, it's take. So, uh, David and his men, when they're not going to be with the Philistine army, decide to do what? Go home. Yeah. And home right now is the city of Ziklag. <laughs> Can you imagine the feelings of the soldiers as they are on their way home? They are looking forward to being home, looking forward to seeing the wife and kids, you know, relieved that they're not going to have to participate in this uh, warfare and so forth. And they get to Ziklag and what has happened? The Amalekites have come in and wiped them out. Taken all their stuff, all their families, and burned the city. It's like Job repeated 600 times. It's a terrible tragedy, terrible disappointment. Now I want you to think about the hand of the Lord in this. David has been delivered from the Philistine crisis, but he has not yet been brought back to God. I think that's pretty obvious by the charade he tried to maintain in chapter 29. So he comes back to Ziklag, and it's crushing. And David's men, how do they feel? They're very upset, and they're ready to stone David. I suspect they questioned the <laughs> wisdom of even the thought of participating in this uh, crusade against Israel. While they've been gone, look what's happened. The Amalekites undoubtedly took advantage of the situation. They assume this uh, attack against Israel is going to take a while. David and his men are going to be with the army. So Ziklag's going to be undefended for a long period of time. They can get the stuff and leave, and they'll be long out of there before David and his men come back. So David's men are very upset with him. David's really in a, in a difficult spot. I mean, who does he have to turn to? You know, who's going to help him? And the Philistines, who wouldn't be a lot of help in some ways anyway, are fighting the Israelites. The Israelites are about to be exterminated, it looks like. 
Um, you know, what, what, what's he going to do? Well, where does David turn in the crisis? To God. Good idea. He calls for the ephod. He inquires of the Lord. Shall we pursue this band? Shall we overtake them? And he's told yes. Finally, God has taught David an adequate lesson, and he turns back to God. The wisest thing he'd done in a long time. In crises, Saul turns to a medium. David turns to God. David's got the better idea. Um, and I feel, it looks to me like, that we ought to see this as the mercy of God one more time. God mercifully does not leave David comfortable in his not being with him. You know, I mean, you would have thought this whole deal with possibly having to go on the crusade against Israel would have been enough to humble David and bring him back to God. Obviously it was not. What does God do when uh, lighter measures have not been enough to humble us and cause us to repent? Well, I mean, if necessary, God in his grace is willing to yank the rug right out from under us and land us on our head. And that's what he does with David. You, you think about that. Here's a parable. Um, say in Second Samuel, when David has the affair with Bathsheba, and she goes home, and everything's good, and no harm done. You know, nobody has to know, you know, and whatever. Of course, he's guilty before God. God could leave him there, but God doesn't choose to leave him there. God wants to bring him back to him. So the word comes, she's pregnant. Now, that was a pretty severe joke. That was designed to try to humble him and bring him back. It didn't. David was just kind of hardened in that, and he tries to bring Uriah back to make it seem like it was his child. But Uriah has so much honor as a soldier, he won't go home. And David tries to get him drunk, and a drunk Uriah is more honorable than a sober David. And so, you know, but when Uriah said, no, I couldn't do this when the army's not be able to enjoy this, that's another kind of David, wake up. But he doesn't. So David sends Uriah with the letter to the battlefield to have him set up to be killed. And the messenger comes back to David. Uh, they, we suffered a defeat, blah, 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 blah. And Uriah is dead also. Another effort on God's part. David, wake up! You know why Uriah is dead. And David's like, well, you know, I mean, that's kind of what happens when you join the army. I mean, some people are going to die, so to tell Joab not to worry about it, he'll get him next time. What now? What's left for the Lord? You know, when these measures haven't awakened him, then God pulls the rug out from under him. He sends Nathan to tell him the sword will not depart from your house. The child will die. Your wives will be taken and violated in broad daylight. And finally, David wakes up, confesses his sins, and repents and turns back to God. It's a blessing God was willing to do that. Because it's much better for David to be with the Lord, even with terrible consequences of his sins, than for him to continue to be brazen to get out. I think that's the same here. You know, other things should have awakened David. They didn't because David's pretty hardened. He's pretty entrenched in this uh, facade he's putting on. And so God goes the next step. Maybe almost the ultimate step. I don't know if God had 
anything else he would have tried if this hadn't done it or if this was kind of the last opportunity for David to come back to it. But when David and his men come back to Ziklag and it's gone and all their family's gone and all their stuff is gone and they're ready to stone David, that is finally enough for David to turn to God and start listening to God and want God's help. Comments and thoughts, Justin? Uh, are we able to um, to say that that was necessarily God's providence when we're not when it doesn't specifically say so in things like that? I because, think so. Because he doesn't specifically say that God sent the Amalekites to do that, and I mean that could be just a natural thing that happened because, like you said, because they were gone, the Amalekites took advantage of that, and it doesn't necessarily say that God did that. That's correct, and, and typically it will not. I think we see God's hand even when it doesn't specifically say those things. I think we are able to say that because we see that as something that God did to bring him back. Typically it won't say that. You know, and so typically we're left to interpret it. Uh, there might be some, some discussion both ways on that. Cameron? Um, no, I forgot one. Okay, let's go on. Alex? I find it so incredibly encouraging that God is going to is willing to go to such extreme steps to bring us to him. Yes. That he is willing to use tragedy in order to bring us to him. And it just speaks so much more to the glory of God that we are able to come to him when we're on week at our guest. Good point. Do you know how many Urim and Thummim there were? Because Saul's convert or Saul's trying to get with this human, and then David has the ephod and has the I Saul didn't have the opportunity to have But didn't he um, in 28, before he talked to the um, uh, medium, didn't say he tried to convert, um, tried to, uh, what's the word? He Why said, yeah, Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. I assumed he didn't answer him by Urim because he didn't have it. Okay. That's what I assumed. David. I love what it says about David that he strengthened himself in the Lord as God. It reminds me of Jonathan at one point had, had encouraged him in God. But now that Jonathan's not around at this point and is about to not be around anymore, uh, he's able to go to God himself. And it's really important for us to be able to do that uh, even when we don't have anyone else to wake us up. Uh, to go to God. To That's a good point, Cameron. Throughout this whole um, story, Saul and David have both been having their down moments and their up moments. And then this last part, they both had a lot of tragedy, and they both turned to God. But God didn't hear Saul, and God heard David. Why do you think the difference? I think because Saul's not trying to repent, he's not trying to serve God, he's just wanting to be bailed out. David really turns to the Lord. John? About the comment earlier about how we, how we know when God's providence is working and tries to try to bring us to repent, I think that whether it's God's special hand in the matter or not, I think in an unpleasant circumstance, God has the expectation that it draws us closer to Him. Good whether point. it's a uh, great tragedy or whether it's just another setback. Good point. I'll buy that. Other thoughts? Ralph? Well, uh, I see, I think it would be really horrible for David to see this as a serious, you know, lockdown when you come back from, because it also, I can also relate to the, to now David, you know, we got uh, people from coming back from Afghanistan. And then, you know, I have, uh, I'm lucky that I have a friend that Mindy is, is Christian, you know, who, uh, who, uh, who you know, talking about the, uh, 
the Bible and God and everything, uh, you know, uh, coming, restoring back to faith. So I have, I can, if anything I need, I can go back to, you know, I can, I can turn to God and then, you know, I can have at least peace and, you know, all these things. But uh, unfortunately, all my friends out there in Marinko, in Marinko, coming back from war and then see, you know, it, it will be like, what, uh, your family members, you know, uh, pass away or all these things. Then I kind of think of, you know, how miserable for, for those Marine and, and you know, soldiers out there who have nothing to, 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 you know, coming back and they see, you know, all, all this miserable thing happening in the hometown in the United, United States and they have no God's country. You're right. The only thing that they, they have country is like what I did was alcohol. And that definitely is a short route to, to that. And so to me, it's a, it will be a, a very fortunate for, you know, uh, for, for those who, uh, you know, who know for, for the Christians to go out there and, you know, reach out for, you know, if you know a veteran, if you know, you know, uh, because our, our this nation is still in war. And we can't, you know, just study the Bible and forget about our, our neighbors. Forget about the, the, re the reality. It's really everybody who doesn't have the Lord who really doesn't have anywhere to turn to and is ultimately in desperate situations. Some see it more readily than others. Some have situations in their life that lead them to see it. But the truth is, every person who doesn't have God doesn't have anywhere to turn. Kelly? Yeah, when we are caught in sin, we don't see how it affects anyone else. And that's where David Watson was killing all these people. I understand the things that my Lord made him do with that, but here he's filled his entire to silence everyone, and now the Lord sees to it that the same thing happens to Ziklag in a sense. So it, the Lord may be doing various things, maybe helping David see how his sin affected a whole lot of people. Good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that angle, but he's reaping what he sows when it's all said and done. Gr. In this study that we've we've had over the last several hours, there's been a lot of points made of these calamities and consequences of, of sin. It's real easy for us to sit in this room, and especially with a lot of the youth that's in here, and, and think that we can understand. But it, it scares me to death to see what can physically happen in this world as a consequence of my sin. It, it makes me tremble. And if we can't relate, if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. In some way, shape, or form, there will be something happen as a as a consequence of either your sin or something else. And as a way to relate, I, I really appreciate some of the things that Rawl has said all weekend long about his experiences. But if we if we've not had these things, we should really look out among us and see the effect that it's had on individuals and on families, and see the the sheer terror and calamity that it's brought on their families, and maybe we can get a real touch of reality of the seriousness. Well, do you know the thing that that makes me think? That is the smaller part. Think about the eternal consequences that are worse still. A absolutely. And so those physical consequences ought to be a reminder. And that's yeah. what they're for. Exactly. Just as a metaphor. Exactly. Yeah, very good. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes. I think on the other hand of that, while it's definitely true and very sobering, the consequences of our faith are also that great. And you think of like <coughs> Hannah praying for a son and saying, 
yeah, I believe you give me this sign, I'll give it back to you. And then Samuel like is an era in Israel. Like and how many things that he impacts just, you know, as an answer to this one prayer and so Good point. Yeah, it's a good talk. All right, well, let's see what happens. Uh, they're in pretty desperate circumstances, uh, but the Lord is saying through the ephod, pursue them, and you'll be able to overtake them and rescue everything. Will that happen? 9 to 20. So the Lord set out the 600 men who were with him, and it came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook and the Lord. They found the Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of, a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt servant to an Amorite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Rephites and against, and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. We, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or the leave of the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And they would struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and said, this is David's spoil. So, David and his 600 men go, but 200 of them get to the brook, and they're too exhausted to go on. So David and the 400 go on. They find this Egyptian who's been left behind by the Amalekites. He's, uh, you know, in bad shape. Uh, he, and, and David takes compassion on him, gives him something to eat and drink, and he manages to revive. He hadn't been eating or drinking for three days. It's interesting that David, who's got a mission, trying to recover his family and the stuff and all that, is willing to turn aside to show compassion and give first aid to this Egyptian in need. That's really a rather amazing thing that he would show that kind of concern. And, uh, and, but he does, and it turns out to be a real blessing because he finds out that he was a servant to the Amalekites. They just left him behind when he got sick. And he had been a part of the raid and he knows where they are and what's going on with them. So this slave manages to give David a complete intelligence report. You, you, if you didn't believe in the Lord, you'd say, wasn't that an amazing coincidence? You know, what, what luck that they ran across this slave. Of course, from our perspective, we see the hand of God in that as well. You know, and, and, and this would illustrate again 
The text never says, oh, and by the way, it was God that worked that out. But we know God works those things out. It's obvious in the story that that's the hand of God. I think that's the way we should see those things. We need to look for that more. You certainly see that consistently through the Bible, credit being given to God for things like this. So when they get to where the Amalekites are encamped, what are the Amalekites doing? <laughs> Party time! Man, this is great. They're living it up. They got lots of time because the Israelites will be occupied for a long time against the Philistines, or David's band against the Philistines. So they're just enjoying themselves, probably not very prepared for war. David slaughters them, and none of them escape. He recovers everything the Amalekites have taken. They're all their families and everything. Wonder why they didn't kill the family. From their perspective, from, from, from our perspective, from the Lord's will, we can understand. But what would the Amalekites have been thinking, Dana? Maybe because they spread their <laughs> Maybe not. Slaves. That's what I think. Might make, well make something off of them. I mean, you shake them alive, then you can sell them on the slave market, and you can get more you know, money out of it. So that, I think from their self-interest, that makes sense. But they could have exterminated them, and they did not. And, and they could, and, and so so David managed to get everything back. Now, what I see in that is this: God is so amazingly compassionate and merciful. He does what he has to do to wake David up, but he does only what is necessary to get David back. You know, God God doesn't go any farther in in these consequences than what what is necessary. You know. He, they hadn't killed anybody, you know, and, and they're unprepared. David's able to, to apparently, you know, recover everything without losing any man. I mean, God, God wakes him up. God pulls the rug out from under him, but then helps him back up and patches it all back together again. I mean, God is so merciful in both what he did to bring David to his knees and in what he does to help him back up. The, the grace of God for a man like David who really wasn't being faithful to God. I mean, I know now he's turned back. But, but God, God is just constantly, you know, working things out to give us only the discipline we really need and then be able to bless us again. That, that's an incredible attitude on the Lord's part. And, uh, you know, when the Amalekites took the people of Ziklag, David hadn't repented yet. I mean, you know, God knew what was going to happen and he providentially permits all the people uh, to stay alive. Comments and thoughts on this? I really like this part. Cameron? Um, in verse 15, that servant or slave, he again brings up God. Why is he bringing up God if he's from another... This word God, word God would be the general word for God that all would have been using. So maybe that's the reason. David? Um, in verse yeah, 16 where it says, uh, they're dancing because of the great spoil that they've taken from the land of the Philistines. Is that the land, this, just these southern portions that they've raided that we've been named specifically, or did they kind of go on a war path through? I, I don't know that at all. I really know what you've been mentioned. Yeah. 
This seems kind of really, I don't know, ironic here that this scene which David and his men go to back to their home in Ziklag is strangely familiar to what he did in all of his raids. And in chapter 27, verse 8, it says that he did this to some of the Amalekite cities. So I'm not sure this is too much speculation, but I don't know, maybe someone saw that David was doing this and they were waiting for David to go away so that they can get some payback or part of it. Maybe, except he exterminated everybody and didn't let anybody else know. Maybe they found out anyway, but that would be a question mark. Yeah, it looked like he was fishing or something. We saw it. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that no men escaped and no men escaped. I uh, know where are we looking at. Is there a distinction? Okay, what are, what are we looking at? Yeah, no, the only 400 of the Amalekites escaped. Am I right about that? Yeah. So none of them escaped except the point. That's just the way you say it, and then didn't any of them escape except one. Uh, it's interesting just how, like, the last time David woke up in chapter 23, uh, he had mercy on Kila and delivered them, and now he wakes up again here and he delivers this Egyptian. It's like, as soon as we come back to God, we immediately just start serving others, and it's just, he does a couple of those things. Uh, that's a good idea, good point. I like that. Other thoughts? Ethan? Do you see, like, the 200 soldiers that stopped at the ravine as a way of God's making sure that David couldn't boast in his own men at this point. <coughs> Maybe, I don't know. I'm not sure David would have at this point. I think they Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is a point going to be made about that later. That may be part of the purpose in it as well. Anything else to this point? Okay. Uh, 21 to 31. And David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, and they had also had, had made to stay at the brook Bethor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. But David came near the people and greeted them. And all the wicked and worthless men of those who, when David answered, said, Because they did not go with us, we would not give them any of the spoil that we had recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with, the Lord, with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand who came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part, but as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramah of the south, those who were in Jatir, those who were in Aror, those who were in Sithoth, those who were in Eshtemoth, those who were in Rachel, those who were in the cities of Jeremiah's, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Homa, those who were in Troshan, those who were in Athar, those who were in Hebron, to all the places where David himself and his men <laughs> Okay, so David and his men, now with all the spoil and family members, come back 
to the brook where the 200 two exhausted men had stayed behind with the baggage and there's kind of a debate about what they're going to do with those 200 men. What's that debate about? Yeah, they didn't really go to the battle. They stayed back at the brook. So should they be in on the cut of the spoil? Or should that just be divided among the 400 who actually went on? And, uh, you know, there's kind of a dispute about that. Probably whether you went on or didn't might have determined which side of that dispute you were on, Justin. Kind of funny example where it is the camp, but wasn't there a couple other times where he took 400 and 200 stayed behind? Do you think that's the same group of people, and these are just 200 people that just aren't as as strong and and will powered as the 400, and they're just like lazy and stuff? Because it says that they were worthless and and wicked. And well, that it's the worthless and wicked men who say to David, okay. they shouldn't share in the spoil. I, I don't know. I just don't know if it's he's got 200 men that are just a lot not as strong and a lot lazier than the 400 and that's why they stayed back a couple there's years. no i don't know that there's an implied criticism of their work <laughs> so i don't know they may just be they got too tired you know, i don't know not everybody's got the same stamina. verse 23 says they share goats uh the ones who stay baggage they shall share alike so some of these because of baggage. yeah the, the david's decree is they all share alike terry oh yeah my wife and children that's a very good point. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, this is has been an all-out march, you know, a run or whatever, uh, to try to get to the Amalekites before they get too far away, while we can still try to find them. Nathan. I think one of the things that's been so admirable about David is like the relationship he's had with with his men. But his, I guess, risky leadership and making the treaty with the Philistines almost ruined that. You're he's right. He's able to rebuild it. Yeah, you're right. Good point. And I think his principle, they all share alike. The 200 stayed behind with the bags before we went on and recovered the stuff. Everybody gets the same. That becomes kind of the ruling principle for the division of the spoil from here on out. But I think that's an equitable, just principle that is the right thing. David takes some of the spoil that he gets and sends it as a gift to leaders of cities of Judah, which is a wise thing. Uh, perhaps it's a reflection mostly of David's generosity, but it certainly is politically helpful in reestablishing David's commitment to provide for and be a blessing to this, these cities of his people. Comments and questions? Cameron? It says in the places that he was used to traveling around, but he's been in the Philistine land for quite some time. But he's been making raids uh, against the enemies of Judah. But I thought he wasn't making raids against them, faking that he was raiding other places. Well, he's raiding enemies of Judah up in that uh, territory. Of course, he may also mean places he went prior to his year and four months in Ziklag. John? Continuing the theme of seeing God's goodness and bringing David back to him, not only does he send the, uh, the, the, uh, the bad circumstance to bring him back, but from what I understand, he not only recovers 
their things, but some of the Amalekite stuff. So right. It's almost like positive reinforcement. Now I brought you back. Look what I can yet do to Almost made money off of this. Of course, they do need to rebuild their city, but yes. <laughs> Look. So is this saying that David's fit like supplies to all the towns he's raided? Well, he raided their enemies. He didn't raid those towns, but he's sending supplies to towns of Judah that later he will become king of. Andrew. I think it's cool how in verse 20, after they get the spoil, all the men say, this is David's spoil. And then in verse 23, we see that David says that this is what the Lord has given to us. Good point. And I think it's just so cool how, like, you know, He's not glorying in himself. He's not saying, like, we got this by our power and our might. Or it's like, you know, Saul, so many times he gloried in himself and something built himself up. But that's not what David does here. Yes. Always the right thing to give the credit to the Lord for the blessings that he gives us. You see that principle constantly. Yeah. Maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but the, the fact that David also rewards those who stay behind makes me think about our lives today and that there are the people who can go out and do certain things and go fight the battles, but there's also the people who, at least the way I saw this, who maybe can't go out and do this, those specific things, but they are also fulfilling the role and that they are rewarded by God as well. Absolutely. We tend to only look at the frontline troops as counting, but they all, in whatever role, are God's soldiers and need to be uh, Sharing the, the, the inheritance. Yes, but Going along with that, David would not have been one that would stay by with the supplies. That was Saul that would be hiding in the bag. <laughs> David is the one that, you know, I mean, he's out there in the battle. So I think that is a good principle for all. Yeah, and it is interesting that uh, Saul's kingship begins when he was hiding in the baggage, and uh, uh, his kingship ends uh, with some of David's soldiers keeping the bag. So I don't know if there's something to that, probably. <laughs> Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. Now the Philistine 